0: And now back to David Spada and Elliot Harris for more sports and torts on talkzone.com.
1: On the phone we have former New York Giant, nine-time Pro Bowler, a member of the Giants from nineteen seventy-six to nineteen eighty-eight. I remember him playing a lot, especially in the Super Bowl twenty-one there when the Giants won the Super Bowl. NFL Hall of Famer Harry Carson. How are you doing, Harry? Doing great. I see you went to college at South Carolina State. How did you end up there? Actually, um,
0: I wound up following friends there. Um, it wasn't like I was heavily recruited coming out of high school because I quit my my team in my senior year because of a little disagreement that I had with my high school coach at the time. And um, but I wound up going to South Carolina State and. Um, uh, you know, that's how I got there, just following friends.
2: Did you have any idea what you were in for, or that you'd be playing football when you did go to South Carolina State?
0: Well, I knew I was going to be playing football. Um, didn't really know what I was going to be in for because, you know, I played on the high school level, and college was a completely different uh, situation, and the competition was much more intense than than I thought but I had to adjust very quickly and you know fit in and and uh, as it turned out I wound up being a starter as a freshman so I was able to sort of adjust to the program and you know, I, I, I thought I fit in very well.
1: you had some pretty good players on that team you had, uh, former Pittsburgh Steer Donnie Shell,
0: and I see uh, a baseball player Willie Mays Aikens. Yeah, yeah, we had a we had a pretty good team. You know, my first year, um, you know Donnie Shell and Barney Chavez, who played for Denver Broncos, um, you know they were there, and um, Willie Aiken uh, was my backup, and he came in and you know he, while he was primarily a, a baseball player, he was my backup on the football team. And so, um, you know, I had the opportunity to play with some really you know talented guys back during that era, uh, whether it was football or you know, I had other uh outstanding athletes surrounding me. um Willie, I think Willie and Gene Richards were like one, two in the baseball draft. During that time, it might have been like 74, 75 or something like that But,
2: you know, there was a lot of talent there And then the NFL draft Comes around and you get picked In the fourth round Were you disappointed, happy? What was your feeling at that time?
0: Well, you know
2: I, I, I really didn't have a
0: whole lot of Expectations because um, You know, being chosen To play in the NFL was good But um, You know, I'd been scouted by scouts and GMs and player personnel people, and some had projected me to to go as early in the second round, and then there are others who projected me to go, you know, even later than the fourth round. Um, You know, I was drafted, um, and, you know, quite frankly, I was a little disappointed because when the Giants drafted me, they wanted me to play uh, middle linebacker. And I'd never played middle linebacker before. And I was comfortable just playing right defensive end, you know, getting after the quarterback from the blind side and so forth. And um, so Marty Schottenheimer drafted me and he taught me how to play the Mike Linebacker position. And again, you know, I had to adjust whether it was in, you know, uh, high school, whether it was in college or on that pro level, as as a rookie, I had to learn a new position, um, which was probably the toughest position to learn as a um, middle linebacker in a 4-3 defense at the pro level. So it, it was a challenge, but you know I, I think that I validated um, Marty choosing me in the fourth round to be that player to play that position.
1: I mean, you had a tough act to follow. I know he was retired for a while, but Sam Huff, I mean, he basically invented the middle linebacker position.
0: Well, you know, Sam Sam Huff had retired, uh, you know, years before I, I got there, but I was certainly aware that Sam Huff had played with the Giants. Um, quite frankly, that was one of the things that um, that I liked about the Giants at that time, was that rich history and tradition that uh, players who had played before I got there had left. And so it gave me something to shoe for, to basically follow in the footsteps of an, an iconic player like a Sam Huff.
2: What was the transition like going from South Carolina State to the New York Giants?
0: Well, the transition was, um, you know, it was hard, Uh, a lot of study. Um, I I remember I used to go work out at the University of South Carolina, and their coach was uh, Jim Harlan. And, um, you know, Carolina gave me the um, freedom to come to their facility and work out. And I remember engaging in a conversation with- Hello? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. coach carlin and and i engaged in conversation and he said you know uh when you are in college it's about 80 percent uh physical and 20 percent mental but when you get to the pro level it's the reverse it's 80 percent mental and 20 percent physical and it didn't Dawn on me at that time, I heard what he said, but it didn't dawn on me until I got into the NFL training camp and had to, you know, we, the, the playbook that I first got was about ten times thicker than, than the playbook that I got when I was with the Giants, with, uh, with South Carolina State. So, uh, you know, there's a whole lot more, uh, intellectual work that you have to do, a whole lot more studying. It, it's more mental. Uh, people look at it and they see the physical side of it, but they don't, have no clue as to the mental aspect of the game that you have to be able to deal with um, once you come into the National Football League.
1: And the Giants had some good linebackers when you were there. You hit Brad Van Pelt, Brian Kelly. I mean, you guys were loaded, and then you hit the famous uh, teammates of yours. It was you, Carl Banks, and Lawrence Taylor, who a lot of say are the best linebackers in uh, NFL history.
0: Well, I'm not going to go so far as to say the best linebacking uh, group in NFL history. Yeah, I'd like to thank that, but I'm not going to say it out out loud. Um, Yeah, the the guys who I first came in to play with, um, Brad Van Pelt, Brian Kelly, um, you know, they were really good players. And then when the Giants chose um, Lawrence Taylor, and we went from a 4-3 defense to a 3-4 defense. We became a very dominant group of defensive players. But, you know, we couldn't have been as, as dominant as we were without a good, strong defensive line. And then uh, after Brad and Brian left... Uh, Carl Banks and Gary Reasons assumed their roles, and so it was myself, Carl, um, Lawrence, and, and Gary, and, and we wound up being a pretty good quartet of, of linebackers in the mid-80s. Well, you
2: know, you're a nine-time Pro Bowler, so your first one came a couple years in 78, so they recognized fairly early that that you did have some ability and you were playing at a high level. How, how gratifying was that?
0: Well, you know, it was gratifying. Uh, it was even more gratifying for me to come in and make the all-rookie team playing a position that I'd never played before. And then a couple of years later, I made the Pro Bowl. And, um, you know, that was before Lawrence got there, and I sort of made that on my own merit. And I was named NFC linebacker of the year twice. And so, um, you know, those were tremendous honors. And when Lawrence arrived, you know, we all got even better. You know, um, he, he just elevated our play the way that he played the game. It, it took some pressure off of other players, put a lot more pressure on him, and it gave us an opportunity to make plays. So we all worked together, and it you all know, worked out well.
1: It seemed like when Lawrence Taylor joined the Giants, he became like the first defensive like rock star for the NFL. Whereas all the exposure seemed to be publicity on the offensive guys, but Lawrence seemed to basically become the face of the NFL.
0: Yeah, you know, and I, I think it's well deserved that um, he was he was an outstanding player, and um, you know we were good, but he was better, and so you want to focus on the. The best, and he established himself as being the best. And um, again, we were able to uh, infuse our games with the way that he played, and it just elevated our play. And you know, there was no jealousy uh, with the attention that Lawrence was getting. Um, for us, it was just about, um, you know, bottom line, the production. That we were able to uh, produce on the football field, that was ultimately the bottom line. And, you know, everybody understood what their roles were. And I knew my role wasn't to rush the quarterback, Uh, my role was to stop the run. And so I tried to fulfill my role as best as possible. Uh, Lawrence did a great job. And, um, And, you know, the other linebackers and defensive linemen did their job. As it turns out, the spotlight is always on the flashy guys. And so Lawrence was one of the flashy guys who, uh, you know, he very richly deserved uh, the attention that he got as a player.
2: In some way, does that help other players if you have this, this guy who becomes sort of a lightning rod for the media and other things? you can go about your work and not be uh, distracted or bothered by a lot of other stuff?
0: Well, you know, it's, it has an effect on that player. If that player has a problem with the, with the media attention, then that could be a problem for the team because he can sort of lash out at any time when it becomes a bit too much for him. But, um, you, you know, it just um it didn't really it didn't bother me because I had to deal with the media anyway as, as a captain. but uh, for other players, yeah, it allowed them to just sort of focus on playing the game, uh, not having to deal with the media and just flying under the radar and not having to deal with cameras and microphones and so forth. So you know, in some ways it can be a plus. For your teammates, in other ways, it it can be a negative for your teammates. So that's that.
1: You talk about violence in the NFL, but the most famous hit, I think, is that one that Lawrence Taylor put on Joe Theising that ended his career. When he made that hit, I mean, what was going through your mind? Well, you know, we
0: had talked prior to that game, And, um, you know, every Friday we would sit and go over our goals uh, as a defensive unit. And the one thing that I remember saying is don't knock Joe Theismann out of the game. Because we knew everything about Joe. We wanted him in the game. And if we had him in the game, you know, there was a very good chance that we were going to win the game. And so um, the play that everything occurred was a flea flicker. In that he he, I uh, initially started to be like a running play where he handed the ball to John Riggins. And um ultimately my responsibility is to stop the run. When I saw Riggins pitch the ball back to Tyson, I was already up into the line to stop the run. And I was sort of in this no man's land where you know, I didn't know whether I should go back to my pass coverage or go ahead and rush the quarterback. So I decided to react as a football player, and I rushed the quarterback. and he, and Thiesman sidestepped me, and so when he sidestepped me, Lawrence came in for the kill shot and came down on his, on his leg. Um, if I had tackled him, if Joe was not as nimble as he was at that time, he probably could still play today. But um, because he eluded me and Lawrence Godin, uh you know, we we saw what was probably the most gruesome injury that you know so many people have seen you know playing uh, uh, watching NFL football so it was it was a situation that nobody really wanted but it happened and you reacted um, as a humanitarian because what you do is you you stop being competitors and, and combatants and you take on a more um, humanitarian role and in, in that both teams started to talk to Joe because we didn't want him to go into shock um, and you know football just wasn't that important for those minutes that he was down on the ground
2: now during your career you had an assistant coach there by the name of Bill Belichick who's gone on to become rather successful with the Patriots and he called you the best all-round linebacker he ever coached what was he like as a, as a position coach
0: um, Bill was a, ver- a, a very headsy coach in that, you know, it was about thinking. Um, and it was about creating new situations on the defensive side of the ball to, um, disguise coverages, to utilize the strength of different, um, uh, phases of the, of defense. Uh, it was that, it was on Bill Belichick that we first started rushing just two linemen which is unheard of in a, in a past situation um you know you want to get three four five you want to get the blitz but but two linemen rushing and um you know everybody else back in coverage was very unusual and there were times when we you know bill was right things on the board as to, you know, just diagramming as a coach, and we'd look at it, and we'd say, Bill, that, that won't work. You know, it's not it's not sound, and um, we'd go out on the field, and we'd incorporate it into our practice sessions, and it would work, and so we'd go into games, and we'd do things in games that the opponent had not seen, and uh, it would throw, you know, different teams off. And so, it, you know, it was once we got to a point where we really began to trust uh, Belichick, um, you know, we sort of looked at him as a sort of mad scientist who could come up with all kinds of coverages and all kinds of fronts that would help us tremendously if we just bought into it. And, and at that time, we all bought into it um, full tilt.
1: And then you hit Bill Parcells, and he took over for what Ray Hanley, and he guys he took you to the Super Bowl here. What was he like?
0: Well, Parcells took over for um, uh, Ray Perkins. Ray Perkins,
1: sorry, not Ray Hanley.
0: Yeah, and um, I, I think Bill came in, and he tried to coach a certain way, and like treat guys like men and give them a certain amount of freedom and flexibility and it didn't work for him and uh, we had a disastrous season we had a lot of injuries we went 3-12-1 and, and you know Bill almost got fired and uh, as a result the next year he decided that he was going to do things his way and and so um, you know when he did that he, you know he let certain players go he let Brian Kelly go let Brad Van Telco, and he got players in that he wanted, and who were younger, and who had a hunger, uh, for playing. And so um you know, he experienced, a su- success in 84, and then 85, and then ultimately in 86, we went to the Super Bowl.
2: Did you think there would be two or three more Super Bowls in, uh, in your future?
0: I didn't think about it at the time because I really didn't know how much longer I was going to play. I was an older player. When we won our first Super Bowl, you know, I'd already played, I think, 10 years. Or maybe I was going into my 11th year. And, you know, I, I could feel my body and I, and I could tell that, you know, I didn't really have much longer to, to play. And so, uh, as it turns out, after we won in 86, you know, I played two more years, and then that was a wrap for me. And I just wanted to move on with my life. I wasn't really thinking about Super Bowls or how many Super Bowls we could go to. Uh, you know, I just feel very fortunate that, you know, we were able to get to at least one. One was better than none, and there are a lot of players who are great players who have never even gotten to a Super Bowl.
1: You were one of the players who started the Gatorade Shower. How did that come about?
0: Well, it was uh, Jim Burt's idea. It started in 1985, and uh, Parcells had been riding Burt all week prior to the Redskin game. And and um, you're really getting on the Burt's skin. And so, um, we, you know, we went into the game, we played the Redskins, and as time was winding down, um, Burt came over to me and he said, you know, that Parcells is a real SOB. And he said, you know, we should get him. And I said, well, what do you mean, we? He said, well, you're one of Parcells' guys. And uh, if you did something to him, uh, you know, he wouldn't say anything, but if I did something to him, he'd have my ass. So he said, you got to do it with me. I said, well, what do you propose? He said, well, let's get him with the Gatorade. And so as time was winding down, he took his headphones off. You know, we doused and went to Gatorade. Nobody really saw it during that time. It was one instance that that had occurred uh, in 1985. But the next year, we lost our first game against the uh, Dallas Cowboys, and in the second game, we were playing the San Diego Chargers, and nobody gave us a shot to win that game. But as it turned out, we won. And we were all very jubilant about winning the game, so I grabbed a bucket of Gatorade and I doused Parcells. So, you know, the next week we won again. And so I had to douse them again because, you know, if you do something one week and if it works, you know, you've got to keep doing it. And, you know, Parcells was very superstitious and we were, you know, some of us were also very superstitious. And, and so as long as we were winning, we had to get him with the Gatorade. And so that's how the whole thing uh, started. Um, and, you know, it, it sort of perpetuated itself during the '86 season. So, you know, that's one of those things now that, you know, everybody does. And after all these years, you know, you know, players are still doing it.
1: I'm surprised Gatorade didn't uh, give you guys some money to do it because it gave them a lot yes. of publicity.
0: Well, I, you know, I'm not going to... Go into that, but um, you, you know, they they showed their appreciation at some point after that season.
2: Now, when you say Parcells and some of the players were superstitious, he had you stand next to him during the singing of the national anthem. How'd that come about?
0: Uh, it was just one of those things that happened. You know, um, I remember the first time you know I was standing there as captain. Yeah, I stand there, I was standing there because, you know, I had to get instructions from him as to what to call or what end of the field we're going to defend. And so it just got to a point where if we were getting ready to begin the game and we're, the national anthem was being played, you know, he'd call me if I wasn't there. And, uh, you know, I had to stand to his left. So, you know, that's the way it, Happened, and you know, I I really didn't think about it at the time. Uh, In retrospect, you know, there are people who who noticed. There are people who have written about it. But uh, yeah, he's a very superstitious coach, and you know, it's always it's almost funny sometimes thinking back, you know, as to how superstitious he, he was.
1: I see that you suffered, what, 15 concussions during your career? And I know you've been outspoken with how violent the game is and what it's done to you. Would you play played the game again if you knew what was going to happen to you?
0: Well, from a physical risk standpoint, yeah, I would, because yeah, I knew that you could get hurt playing. From a neurological risk standpoint, I would not play, because um, now when you have all the information about the issues of Players after the game, uh, you know, I'd really have to be insane to say, you know, I would risk my brain to play a game. And so, you know, I've been very outspoken about it. I, you know, I was diagnosed long before, uh, this became a, a topic in vogue to talk about. And I know that if, you know, I dealt with situations, um, from a neurological standpoint, there are probably a whole lot of other players who've done the same thing i 've been talking about it for years it 's a hot button topic now and um, you know I just try to shine a light on it. unfortunately, you know there are a lot of um, there are a lot of former players who are dealing with these these issues, and I think that um, because this wasn't something talked about years ago. There have been many former players who probably have suffered in silence and have passed away, and nobody really knew what their issues were, or nobody knew that there was a correlation between what they dealt with with dementia and Alzheimer's and Lou Gehrig's disease and the concussions that they may have sustained as football players, not just on the pro level, but on the college and high school level. Is there a solution to this problem or, you know, if you're the NFL, what do you do? Uh, there is no solution to the problem. I mean, you, you, you try and eliminate concussions as much as possible, but the reality is, if you look at the game, it's a physical game. It's about contact. It's about speed. It's about power. And um, if you're going to have all of those ingredients, you're going to have concussions. So... You know, there is no solution. It's, it's just that, you know, players should be aware of what they're signing themselves up for or parents should be aware of what they're signing their kids up for. Um, you know, I sort of have a unique life in that I didn't ask for... Any attention, but I've been talking about this whole issue, and unfortunately, I get a lot of phone calls and emails from mothers of sons who have played, from wives of players who played in the NFL, uh, from players themselves who have played, who are now having, you know, serious neurological problems. Um, And the uh, the worst part is uh, the emails that I've gotten from you know, sisters or brothers who have committed suicide, or uh, reading about various players I know who have committed suicide.
1: I see that it took a while for you to get in the Hall of Fame, and you asked that your name be taken off the ballot because mm-hmm. you weren't happy with the selection process. Is that correct?
0: It wasn't so much about the selection process. Um, you know, the Hall of Fame was never a goal of mine. And, um, you know, I saw what it was doing to people around me more so than me. Um, you, know, I was, you know, I was pretty good at dealing with it, but when you, when you deal with people and they care about you, um, they want the best for you. And I, and I think, you know, there are so many people who wanted the best for me. And so year in, year out, when, you know, they'd have that... Hall of Fame voting and I didn't make it. I mean, there were people who were upset. I mean, they would, they would cry, they'd show anger and so forth. And I would take, it was like I was the only one who was taking it in stride. And so, um, there were, I I remember going to the gym and, you know, to work out and there were people in the gym who would avoid me because they quite frankly didn't know what to say you know it's like having a death in the family and you don't know what to say to someone who is close to that person who dies and so you sort of avoid them to not say anything because they went through a whole series of years where they said oh I'm so sorry You know, you'll you'll get it next year. I'm so sorry. And then, you know, after five years, you you get tired of hearing, I'm so sorry. So you you get tired of hearing it, they get tired of saying it, and they start to avoid you. Or you go to a dinner, and let's say I go to a dinner at the Waldorf Astoria, and there's an MC and he's introducing the athletes or celebrities in the audience. And, you know, it will always come down to, and this man should be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. When you hear that over and over and over and over and over, (laughs) you get tired of hearing it. And so, you know, I just made a a decision that I wanted to take my name out of consideration so I can go ahead and live my life and, you know, just be a private person. Nobody needed to know you know, about the whole Hall of Fame thing, just, you know, I I sat down wrote a letter, asked them to remove my name from consideration. So it wasn't out of frustration, as a lot of people may think, because honors really don't define me, and they never have. Uh, But it was just I wanted to uh, take possession of my life, take it back, and just be able to go on and, you know, quietly do the things that I wanted to do and not with any kind of fanfare.
2: And then in 2006, she gets voted into the the Hall of Fame. What was that like? Um,
0: It was interesting because I divorced myself of the whole Hall of Fame experience or Hall of Fame situation. So once I wrote the letter and dropped it in the mailbox, you know, I was I was done with it. So once, um, when I was elected, you know, I didn't really have any feeling about it because it didn't mean anything to me. So the one good thing about football is when you make it, when I make up my mind to do something, my mind is made up. And so um, I, I really didn't feel anything. And so I had to <clears throat> um, accept the award. And and the reason why, and I, I could have easily have said, you, you know, thanks but no thanks. But, you know, my wife sat me down and she said, uh, you cannot decline this honor because it's not about you. You know, it's about your coaches. It's about... Uh, your family, your kids and um and she was right. Can and then I started thinking about Wellington Mara because Mr. Mara was probably my strongest advocate. And he was my big supporter. And for me to say, no, don't want to deal with this probably would have been an insult to him. And so I just um Decided to move forward and accept the award. But in, you know, the days leading up to the Hall of Fame ceremony, I really didn't have a speech. You know, I could have just gotten up and said thank you and then sat down. But I wanted to use that moment as an opportunity to shine the light on the issues of retired players. And quite frankly, that was the first thing that I said. And that was probably the only thing that I remember about the speech, that I implored the NFL and the Players Association to do a better job of taking care of its own players if, you know, those players were the best that the NFL had to offer. And so, you know, by me doing that, it sort of shined a light on the issues of Meager tensions by, you know, some players who uh, didn't have a voice. They couldn't yell and scream and say this is unfair. And, um, you know, the improvement of benefits for retired
1: players. I'll tell you one thing. Bill Parcells really respected you because in that Super Bowl, when he said, I just want you to go out there, not the other captains, for the coin toss, the Broncos had what, nine, ten people out there. Yeah, I think that's the ultimate respect from a coach.
0: Yeah, and you know, that was not anything that was planned. at least I didn't know anything about it until it happened. And he told me to go out and as I started walking out on the field by myself I I saw the Broncos in those white uniforms walking toward me. I was like, Oh man, wow, it's what, five, six, seven, eight? You know. And I was the only player representing the Giants. And so, um, you know, it was a an honor for me and I recognized at that time that um you know there there are some great players on that team, but I was being singled out to lead that team and represent the giant organization and you know represent all the giant fans, so you know that was a tremendous honor for me
1: if nine or ten guys came up to you like that, you would run usually from just you,
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was there ever a time during your career where you said, you know, I'd I'd like to be a free agent, I'd like to go play elsewhere? Um,
0: There were times um, in the late 70s when the team wasn't very good, and there were times um, in the early 80s where I mean, I threatened to uh, go into the Air Force and fly planes or something like that. Um, Not necessarily about... Uh, being a free agent. You know, I had this sort of ongoing contract situation with George Young and with the Giant organization over the years. And um, so, you know, after four years of, of playing with the team, I sort of wanted a change of scenery. And, yeah, I felt like I could do better going someplace else and just, you know, uh, reigniting that spark. Because once you get into the same routine driving to the stadium the same way and going to practice and doing the same thing you get a little everything gets kind of dull and i wanted to you know spice things up and i wanted to go you know someplace else
2: and that does it for another edition of sports and torts with david spada and elliot harris i would like to thank our guests summer sanders and harry carson i'd like to thank our executive producer dave olson And like to thank you for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed it. And come back again for Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com.